Welcome to Real Asian Podcast. I am here with Renee for our special one-on-one episode. What's up, Renee? How you doing? Hey, I'm doing really well. Yeah, that's right. It's the Renee and Ray party. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I think personal favorites for sure for the podcast is that's when right. you and I are in a one-on-one conversation. Nothing against Alan, Praga, and Baldwin. <laughs> They're more than welcome to join anytime. But I just feel like there's a higher level of conversation when it's just me and you. <laughs> oh, I know, right? High vibrations, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they, they're going to listen to that and be like, okay, we're never coming back on the podcast. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but guys, we're just listening to what our what our listeners want. And it's more yeah, Renee. Yeah, Renee. Yeah. <laughs> Renee and I have been kind of noticing and, you know, paying attention to the movie sphere. And there's one production company slash distributor that we wanted to talk about. We've talked about movies, uh, these movies on our podcast, The Farewell, Minari, Everything Everywhere All at Once. And it's all underneath this umbrella of A24. And A24, if you don't know, is an indie production studio or distributor. And, you know, I've just been noticing that they've been putting out really good movies lately. I mean, they started out in 2012, 2013. So it's not like they've just splashed onto the scene. But I would say, I think when they came out with Spring Breakers, that was kind of what put them on the map or made them notice in the industry. And then Moonlight which was an Academy Award winner. And if you guys remember, that was that whole fiasco where it was, they, everyone thought La La Land won, but then it was actually Moonlight. And that was like the most notorious Oscar moment until le- earlier this year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it just made me kind of think of like, hey, and, and I think Renee, you wanted to talk a little bit more about everything everywhere all at once. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've put a really really good point to it is like as soon as they started winning awards is really when Mm. they came on to the scene right moonlight was controversial and that fact that lots of people wanted la la land to win but moonlight really like they put a spotlight on that and that also put a spotlight on a24 and a24 has been just knocking it out of the park as far as a distribution partner right so and the movies that they decide to back so you know there's some really good indie stuff there that have like a cult following like um a ghost story is Mm -hmm. is a really good one from like back in you know 2017 um and 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 some other ones like i I really liked the florida project which had a really good run in the kind of what is it the film film festival scene and uh and ladybird you know like everyone was talking about ladybird so you know i think those those really set the tone for all the movies that to come, which is like, you're going to expect a certain formula, if you will, mm-hmm. from a 24, where it's going to be the lens really focus in on the human condition. And I think that's something yeah. that is why a lot of people hold their breath for what's the next a 24 movie going to be. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that you said that they have somewhat of a formula because it's almost kind of like their formula is not necessarily having a formula. I guess if you could say that, it's true. A through line in a lot of their movies is focusing on the human condition. When you think about genres, right? Uh, Moonlight, Farewell, Minari, they did Ex Machina. They did That's period right. pieces like The Witch. Spring Breakers was kind of quirky in its own right. So they don't necessarily, they touch upon sci-fi, horror, comedies, and obviously dramas. But I will say, I think what makes A24 films pretty stand out is the fact that they focus so much on the character growth and development, the story aspect to it. And I say that 
because it's almost kind of opposed to what you normally, what the trend is, or at least the mainstream mainstream trend is nowadays is spectacle. Absolutely. You think about the Marvel movies, you think about Universal Pictures, you think about Warner Brothers. They're all about the what's the flashiest, biggest thing and most explosive thing we can put on screen to like wow audiences. And nothing's wrong with that. I enjoy a good Marvel movie. <laughs> I think you know that I will go out for Marvel movies. I'm a big Marvel That's fan. Right. But to have still a reputable A24 company or A24 movie come out and have people still come out to the theaters for that. To you, what do you think in in, in A24 film, what makes it so unique? Well, besides everything everywhere all at once being super splashy as far as visuals, it it was still a really small team. I think it was like seven people total who did VFX. Most of the movies are very... They have a slow tendency, right? It's very quiet Mm. and it allows you to kind of breathe and feel, you know, just like the story kind of ooze its way through your pores in a sense. Like it's a very, there's definitely like a, a emotional aspect that they're trying to hit. And so I think, so for an example, I think one of my favorite films um, that really transcends this and makes it a really good point is like after Yang um, Mm. with uh, Colin, uh, Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell. And it is such an amazing portrait of what does it mean to be be human? And it's such a moving film. I I don't want to spoil it if no one's actually had a chance to watch it. But basically, the idea behind it is that when you are multicultural, you know, what does that mean? Right. And I feel like even though it's something that's kind of set in the future, it also is really rooted in the present as well. Like I feel like the the metaphor in which they were trying to say, what does it mean to be like to be foreign in the in your own in your own skin in a sense? Mm. And how do you create community? And there's that longing that is there for a familiar as well. And so, you know, I would definitely say the reason why Minari, not Minari, uh, the reason why A24 films are very unique. Well, what if Minari, they were actually robots? <laughs> well, that was, that's that's very, a plot twist. Uh, well, then maybe maybe the pee scene wouldn't be as <laughs> impactful. <laughs> hey, robots can pee too. It's just <laughs> leaking out of the exoskeleton. The, hilarious. Because like, you know, there's, there's the ex machina, the after yang, and they're yeah. both very different, but different takes on 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 it but yeah exactly so i love it i love that there's this aspect of you're a machine but you're still human in a sense you're still kind of like you have feelings and you're you know like what is what is consciousness what you know and so anyway i mean Mm -hmm. like most people today barely walk around in consciousness you know we're not present we're like always on our phone you know looking down on their phone oh yeah (laughs) That's how people get hit when they're crossing the street know, or fall like, off cliffs. That's right. You know, so yeah, anyway, um, for me personally, what, what makes A24 films really unique, it really is the fact that they allow things to kind of slow down all the way and quiet yeah. to be able to really amp up and build up to that aspect of what is the human condition? What, is, what does it mean to have feelings? What does it mean to just be here present in the moment? And uh, one of my favorite films from E24 because of that is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Stylistically, they're quite unique too. You can you can sense there's a style to it. They're very vibrant in how their cinematography is shot. Mm-hmm. I I feel that it's quite impressive how a studio like A24 again still puts up a pretty good fight in terms of cinema 
against the big spectacle movies, the Marvel movies. I'm just going to use them as an example, nothing against Marvel, but just to kind of as a reference point. There's a trait that they have to each movie. I haven't seen all their movies, but I've seen a good number of them. Even before I was kind of cognizant that there was an A24 film, just kind of like, oh, people are talking about this film and I'll go see it. It is a slow build. And I think that's something that people have to adjust themselves, especially if you are so used to watching movies that are like jumping right in and the plot is pretty apparent. There's not much you have to digest. But with an A24 film, it's almost kind of like switching that mind frame. Coming coming at it in an open mind, I think that's the thing too. I think some people, you, you have to watch each, each film with an open mind, knowing that it's going to be a slow build. It's almost kind of like A24 films is a complex carbohydrate that allows for slow digestion versus like a simple carbohydrate, which is that fast sugar spiking your glucose level up. And sometimes we need that. Nice. We definitely need that every now and then. Somebody's been doing intermittent (laughs) fasting here. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Ketogenic, yeah, yeah, your ketosis. (laughs) Yeah, I'm telling you, it's like you have to like slowly, you know, you process it, let your body kind of sit with it, and then you feel like, good at the end you get enough energy to kind of feel like oh okay i've got it so that is really great the a24 films are like the anti-junk food right whereas for marble so many so many things just media in general that are streamed is you're doing it in tandem with something else you usually have your phone up and things like that right if you're streaming it from home and a24 films if you do that you miss everything right like it commands your attention and i think that that's a really good point that you put there. It, it's actually funny. Um, recently, Kim, uh, Chris Hemsworth did an interview where he's all like, I'm never doing a Marvel film ever again after he finally put up Thor's hammer because he realized that there's a whole really swath. Yeah, he's like, there, he really, he realized like there's this whole swath of like directors who aren't just fo- following the MCU, you know, formula. And I think that's one yeah. of the things that he was really, he really wants to do. So first off, he like is taking hiatus from acting to be able to focus on his family. And the secondly, yeah. well, he says like, when I come back to film, I don't want to work on MCU stuff anymore because I want to do like actual cinema. <laughs> you know, So um, I think that's something that's really important to note is like, yeah, MCU is like a big powerhouse as far as entertainment. It's your blockbuster like style where mindless kind of stuff. And, but yeah, I think, I think one of the things that's really important is like the fact that not everything is MCU. And it's it's so funny that we're talking about it in this way, in this context, because like there really isn't any other cinema houses out like that have this like two, 12 decades, 12 years. 12, 12, like multi, multi year. I mean, honestly, yeah. sometimes most art house studios don't last very long or they they put up good films. Obviously, that's the goal that you want to put out good films. Right. And then they eventually get acquired by a bigger studio because, you know, financially, it's tough as an oh, independent absolutely. studio. The profit margins, that's why you make cre- you create these huge blockbusters. Now, granted, like blockbusters are expensive to make too, but you, your, your hopes with the, the marketing and the endorsements and, and merchandising, you get all that return. But as an art house studio, if you're making independent independent film, especially against the landscape of where people are more prone to watching at home with streaming, 
myself included, <laughs> go listen to our theater versus streaming episode. Yeah, right. But nice plug. I say that because <laughs> I just like the comfort of my own home. I just like to be able to get up and pee when I have to. I don't have to step <laughs> over people. I can eat whatever snacks, you know, it's just nice, you know. Um, but that being said, uh, I think it's impressive that A24 has been able to survive this long. I think the only way that you could do that is to really rely on the content that you that you make and stick with the vision, right? You stick with the vision that we're going to create good cinema. We're going to lead with character-driven stories or thought-provoking stories, if you will, and and really lean on like the art piece of making a, a film. Not that Marvel isn't artistic. I know there's a lot of controversy about that, but I think it there's a st- different tone that is not easily recepted by the by the masses that a marvel movie would well take into account while we're recording um avatar the way of water so the second the sequel has just released and while oh, that came out already yes on the on the 16th so <laughs> on ah. friday and so <laughs> so think of it this way right like this is something that has like an ip behind it and things like that and it's while it's not marvel it's still you know, this widely distributed global kind of success. And while it took 250 million um, USD as far as like the budget itself, it so far the opening has only about like been 17 million. I know that sounds like a lot, but when you're talking about MCU, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, that's still really small. That's the barometer. Right? Exactly. So things have changed in that regard. I, I think... Um, it's still Sunday. Everyone's just going to go on this day, just this day alone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but, you know, for the, for the most part, when what you're talking about, right, is like getting these art houses and having making so like there's a reason to go to the movie theaters and things like that. I think one of the things that's really interesting is like cinema has changed. The pandemic has changed. A lot of things. The reason why people are willing to go into movies now when they can just stream is also a, a huge kind of factor into it. Um, and mm-hmm. now that, you know, basically a lot of governments have declared COVID over, you, things are starting to return back to normal. And now China, you know, is like no, no longer doing zero COVID. So people are just like walking around and things like that. So, and they need things to do. So, you know, China is still like a really big, like presence when it comes to like making money and actually was um going back to like the point about 820 a24 in particular when the daniels actually went to a24 with their initial script like four years ago they're like hey we have this film we think you would be really you'd really love it and they just didn't have the money then they, they really mm-hmm. didn't have the money then until moonlight hit then they're like oh uh we're actually finally starting able to get funders and now yeah. they were able to go back to A24 to help them with like distribution and things like that, you know? So that's also something to take into account as well. When, when art houses have um, award-winning movies, things, things change. I, I would, and, and we already know that because we've been talking about cinema for the last, you know, two and a half years. Um, we know that there wasn't a presence of all uh, of Asian American films as they are today. And a lot of it is just because studios are finally willing to, uh, stick their neck out for Asian American films. What what concerns me about A24 is its sustainability. You know, I, I think we've been around long enough to understand somewhat of a, the business side of things. Again, we I, I noted that it's remarkable 
that as an indie studio and distributor, it's lasted this long. But I did read an article, I think this was actually back in July, so I don't know what the status of it is, is that they did put out a bid to be bought out for, it was a lesser number before, but now it's $3 billion. So they are looking to be bought out. And I, and I think that's just to be able to survive. I think even if you are putting out good movies and you're making a name for yourself, there's this aspect of like, how long can we last? Especially as they get bigger, right? As they get bigger, your budgets get bigger. You do have to find a way to kind of make sure that you consistently gain revenue. And again, we talked about how people are going less and less to the theaters. And because I'm concerned about the sustainability, I don't think they have a an integral strategy of how they can navigate the world of streaming. Because I know that they have partnerships with Apple TV Plus and Showtime as a way to be like, okay, we can show some movies on the digital platforms, which is great, but it's not not at their core. Their core is still the, the cinema, which is a good thing as an audience member, as an artist or as a purist, right? From a business perspective, it's kind of going against the grain. And that's my concern. So I think for me, it's them, if they are bought out, and again, it depends on who buys them out, what will that do with the quality? What will that do with the type of movies they put out? I'm not sure. From my perspective, uh, you, you, you make some really good points. Ray about like the longevity of of said indie studios and I think that's just like the way everything goes all at when, once you know <laughs> so per- personally you know if a company is looking to be bought out there's there's a couple of different reasons for that one is like they like um like executive branch kind of like changes or things like that or another one is just like they really just need funding and that some, yeah. so, you know, some companies, while they are bought out, you know, they, they continue to m- maintain their independence from the, mm-hmm. the main company. Um, so it just Let's really, de- so. yeah, you know, so it really just depends. So hopefully it's not like a, you know, like a Viacom, uh, acquisition where basically it's it probably just starts, going to be Viacom. <laughs> right, it's just going <laughs> to start like, you. and just like cutting every single thing that like matters. And I think that's one of the things that actually just recently came out or it's just like, HBO Max, for an example, has had to not only cancel, but then also remove shows from its streaming so that these companies uh, don't receive residuals from streaming, you know, and that like mm. really sucks. So you're right, right? Uh, when, when you say that these indie studios don't really have like a good distribution arm when it comes to streaming, like A24 just happens to have some connections to like Showtime and whatnot. But mm-hmm. at the same time, the the permanence of film is something I think is still up for debate. You know, it's a it's a, it's a huge it's like multi two you know what is it two hundred million uh, mm-hmm. the the film industry is two hundred million revenue stream. You know, like there's there's still lots of money to be made here when it comes to film and cinema. And but with evolving technology, what what does that mean? And plus, and I, and I don't know if this is entirely true, but I think one of the key factors of their quality movies that I have read and heard from multiple interviews that I've watched is that they a lot of their movies allow the actors a rehearsal process or built-in kind of rehearsal schedule, which is kind of rare nowadays because it's expensive. I mean, number one, okay, they allow a rehearsal process because as an actor and as the filmmaker, it really allows them to kind of flesh out the script and the and the movie 
you had to see it acted out without actually shooting it. So you're not wasting film. And I think that's like a small, it's like a small thing to do that usually creates big impact. Minari had a rehearsal process. I think the whale had a rehearsal process and there's Oscar buzz around that movie and big ups to Brendan Fraser for his uh, comeback. But so, so the rehearsal process I think is, is an interesting thing that a 24 does. Again, I don't know if they do it for all of their movies, but my worry is that again, it's an expensive thing because you have to pay the actors, you have to pay the crew and you're not filming it. You have to, and then you can, you're able to, to shoot it. So uh, I, I worry that they can't sustain that for, for a long time if we're talking about their finances. And oftentimes when you're trying to survive, you, you cut costs. And when you're cutting costs, one of the things included in that could possibly be the rehearsal process and rehearsal schedule. Will that lower the quality of the movies? So that's one of the things where I'm like, I really hope they stay afloat. I'm, I'm for them. I'm just, uh, I think knowing how these things go, eventually there's always going to be a point where they have to make a decision to survive, but also steer away from their core vision a little bit. They might be able to do both. I hope I'm proven wrong, but that's just my take on it. I, I, that is a very, very interesting take. Oh, I wanted to, I wanted to fix um, what I said earlier about the uh, amend what I said about like the industry revenue. The film industry is actually projected to be about um, $95 billion here in the U.S. What I was What did you say earlier? Uh, what I, I said to 200, uh, 200 billion, that's actually video game industry. So video game mm. industry is like Close enough. Yeah, a billion in revenue. So, you know, entertainment in general, right? So for an example, back in 2021, when Minari first came out, it was during the pandemic. And so really they had a very limited distribution and the Asian community really wanted to be able to, or the a- API community really wanted to be able to su- support it. But, you know, they had very limited run. There was, it wasn't available to stream anywhere. There was some film festivals you could be able to go to, to support it. And so one of the things that they did eventually was have some uh, streaming, you know, services that you could be able to do through A24. And I think that was, that was something that they reacted pretty quickly to, to the industry, I would say. And it was kind of the same thing with everything everywhere all at once. It was a limited distribution. And so like Baldwin and I being able to see it, um, like this basically the same weekend, that was, that was like a very limited run. I think it was only available in like three or four cities. And so there was a huge clamor to get actually get it on streaming as well. And, and they, they stuck to their guns. They didn't do it. They eventually started to distribute it a little bit more in the U.S., a little bit more in, in other countries, such as like the U.K. and then in, yeah. in, in, in Asia. Unfortunately, there is this aspect of needing to be able to evolve the industry. And, you know, what you, what you were saying in regards to like, hey, you know, what, what's going to happen to like the pre, pre-pro portion of it? That's that's something that I, I I don't know. I think you still need to cook things. I I think there's still this aspect of if you're trying to find distributor not distributors but like producers uh, who are going to come and and put money into it. I think you still need to create that kind of little trailer in the sense that you that you sell. So I it it'll, it'll be really interesting to kind of see what the industry continues how it continues evolving. 
I wish I had like a little magic eight crystal ball, ball to kind of yeah. It was like eight ball. This wow. Is... Okay. Oh, wow. eight ball. <laughs> Sorry, the crystal ball. <laughs> eight ball. Just sink it yeah. in. That's right. Oh shit. I'm so it can tell you the same thing over and over again. That's what eight balls do. <laughs> eight ball. Is the Try film again. industry gonna survive? <laughs> Try again. Eight. <laughs> eight. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of everything, everywhere, all at once or otherwise known as E-E-A-A-O. I call it the vowel movie. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to talk about it because you and Baldwin did That's an episode right. on it, but that was a quick reaction to it. So I think I, wa- I did want to talk a little bit about it. I watched it again last night. I did I did get to see it, again, just to re- for context. You asked me to do the episode when it came out. I yes, think it came out. I when did. did it come out? Around May, April, May, around that time? It, yeah. I was really busy. I and I had not seen the movie yet. So I was like, I'm down, but... It's going to be like a few weeks till till I'm free to be able to see the movie, which I eventually did. I I think I got a free weekend and I just walked over to my local theater and I just watched it in theaters. I'll be honest with you. The first time I watched it, I think there was a little bit of too much hype. So I felt I walked out of it <laughs> thinking that was a good movie. I didn't think it was like the amazing blow your mind kind of movie that <laughs> everyone made it out to be. Oh, but shit. when I watched it the second time, it did go up a little bit more. So I, I, I think I gave it about an eight when the first time I watched it and it probably went up another 0.5 or maybe one point. I'll give it a nine the second time I watched it. I think it was because, and a lot of people have said this before, is that the first go of it, there's just so much. Yeah. There's there just so much going on, even though they do a good job of trying to containing it with breaking up the film and the pacing of it. It's, not, it's, it's chaotic, but it's not incomprehensible. So I was like, okay, that was a good movie, but man, there was just so much so much stimulation. <laughs> I, I needed to like process everything. And then the second time having seen it and then watching it a second time, I was like pretty good. But generally, I think the themes of it was interesting and quite apparent with in terms of inter- intergenerational trauma, IT. I, I just shorthand <laughs> it now. Nihilism, multiverse, all that stuff. But from your perspective, is it still after so many months removed from it, you said that it was your favorite movie back then. How do you feel about it today? That is, I love how you set that up because for me personally, I definitely feel like I've had this like cyclical kind of like love and then like removal from it because it's just like one of the things that kept happening was like um, fans of the movie are like kind of toxic about it. They're like, this is the best movie ever. And if you don't think so fuck you and i was like what the <laughs> fuck what and it was hilarious because there was actually if you don't like it you're racist <laughs> like, whoa, there was okay. actually there was like this new york times article or something where they're like the uh, best films of the year that you should watch and everything everywhere all at once was not on the list and there were people being rabid online and like trying to do pylons and daniel kwan was all like bro this is not it yeah, if yeah. this is if this if you're going to be this toxic we don't need fans like you you know and it's like he, he was and he was trying to just like going on and talking a little bit about it it's just like look you know you don't we don't need more praise we already received so much right you know how and, many times and, have you seen the movie okay so <laughs> i've kind of lost count and here's the reason i saw it in theaters at least three times um i saw i bought it immediately once it became available on apple tv so that i can have like the special uh, behind the BTS stuff of wow. the film. So I wow, love wow. that. And so I've watched it several times from there. And then also I was traveling 
to like Cancun and then to Southeast Asia. And when you're in and the you air, you were showing 40, it to the people of Cancun. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> That's right. When you're 40,000 feet in the air for like 17 hours, there's nothing else for you to do. So how many times can you watch the you're film? Like, hey, check this out. Look at this. I know this. Literally, literally, I would just like put it up. I didn't have like headphones to listen to, but I just like put it up. And then like my seatmate would like just start watching it. And then they're like, Okay, I need to see what the fuck this movie is. And then they start watching it and I just can see them transition and through all the different you know, the every every little aspect of it, they just start transitioning into like, oh, ooh, or oh, or like, oh, and then like to the point where they're just like sobbing as the you know, they're in the parking lot. And I was like, Oh god, it's too my favorite part. I'm, like, I'm just imi- I'm imagining everyone in the plane just like behind your seat next to you, like watching in this tiny little screen. Right, exactly. Just like um, that, basically, once I know it gets to like the parking lot scene where they're talking mm-hmm. about, you could be anywhere. Why don't you go to a different universe where your daughter's something more than just this? And I make sure to turn away just a little bit so that to allow them privacy to sob because it's such a moving piece, right? So I was just like, yes, if they if they cry, I know that I did a good job of just spreading the gospel of everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> I'm curious in terms of what your take on it related to inter- intergenerational trauma. That was like the f- very first thing that I picked out when I watched the film. Oh, absolutely. Anytime there's a mother-daughter <laughs> aspect to it, I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, like put on my IT glasses. The, the, the hilarious. Well, okay. So I would say IT has been around for storytelling in that regard has been around for for a really long time you can see that and reflected in books and poetry and plays and whatnot so you know it is not something new to entertainment but just the way that they did it just the way that the daniels did intergenerational trauma was just was really was really amazing and breathtaking and actually i want to point out this um tweet that Daniel Kwan wrote where he's basically was talking about it took him a long time to watch Turning Red for an example but he finally had a chance to view it and he was like oh my god uh, what he what he said was like I'm going to sound weird but I feel like my long lost twin sister made and released a movie at the same time as me about a very very similar subject matter and this was the universe's way of letting me know so I think that that's something that's He's talking really, about Domi Shi. Yeah, Domi Shi for Turning Red. And it's just like it it's really amazing that we're not like talking about it amongst ourselves necessarily per se. And actually there's still quite a bit of the community that doesn't have the vo- vocabulary to talk about intergenerational trauma with their community or their family or whatnot. But even still, you can still create these films where you have you want to be able to break the mold of their expectations of your parents down into you and how you decide to carry on the tradition. And I think one of the other really great films that does the intergenerational trauma really well is saving face. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, one so I, yeah, movies. Yes, exactly. Sorry. I'm probably stepping all over your, your points that your, your toes. Are I mean, the no. you make. people, people already know how I feel about saving face in various platforms and medias. I've, I've exhausted my point about it, but, yeah, I think it's like it's not nothing new. I think the awareness of it and like you said the vocabulary of it and how we talk about it is generally accepted and generally aware, especially amongst Asian Americans. 
think about the movies like Joy Luck Club came out yeah. in the 90s, 93. Saving Face right. came out in 2002 or so, I think 2004, 2005. Four, yeah. uh, the Farewell is kind of touches upon that too. So any type of immigrant story centered yeah. around immigrant family will have some threads of intergenerational trauma. If there's one thing, again, so that's nothing new. Because it's not, it's not nothing new, I think one thought that kind of comes to my mind is sometimes it's like, ha, is, it's becoming, is it risk trope, trope land where it's like, <laughs> okay, if I need to make an AAPI movie, I know it's got to have intergenerational trauma, you know, family values, like the, there's specific <laughs> dials that you can turn to make sure that I'm being represented, uh, making sure that people understand it and nothing wrong with that. I'm just, it's just, I'm just identifying the components to it. I think one thing that I would like to think of, like a variation, I've heard this, I forget where I heard this, but it's like intergenerational understanding. It's traumatic in a sense of traumatic in terms of us identifying the pain, but now moving over to an understanding, a point of understanding where the first gens, right? It's now we are getting to the point and by way of Stephanie Shu's character, Joy, by way of like being vocal about our pains and struggles as a first, second generation to our parents. But also when we vocalize it in hopes that our parents hear us, even though they still have expectations of us, like Evelyn does in the movie, there's communication, there's a bridge of communication that's happening. So I would like to see an expansion or variation of it moving from trauma to understanding. I don't know. And I think that process, obviously, people talk about healing um, and healing has many forms. Healing has, healing might not even happen. Um, There's this general acceptance that once we identify intergenerational trauma that we are going to be in a better place i would like to think so but i think that's not applicable that can't be applicable for everyone some people really just don't have that avenue to be to to heal from their traumas from their families so um that's like something that i would like to hopefully see expanded upon mm. in future movies especially relating to asian america you make a really good point about being able to move kind of past it. I think there, the aspect of it that maybe might be a little bit hard is that it's still something that we as a community are still kind of grappling with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why it, it still continues to be like a really main driving focus. So for an example, even after Yang, for an example, another amazing A24, uh, golden child, if you will, um, the director, um, Kagonara is a South Korean director. And even in that film where the main family wasn't like it was it was a mixture it's it was a mixed racial family right but even with that being the case you know we we all have these unmet expectations uh, of what we're trying to look for and so going back to EEAAO <laughs> that's a, I feel like I'm singing the bingo game <laughs> or bingo song or whatever yeah <laughs> Um, okay but yeah going back to everything everywhere all at once what i really appreciated and how and how they did it was that you have to unfortunately watch the full movie to get to the back half and the last like five ten minutes of the film to really to really blossom and change the narrative from just trauma and just Mm. um and just like unmet expectations to then the coming to the head of it and it's hilarious because there's so many asian uh folks that i've seen who've actually sat their parents down to watch the film 
because they want them to see it to so that they can feel seen. And either like their dad will walk out, their parents will fall asleep or something. They're like, mm, I didn't get it. You know, like that kind of thing. And it's like, you can't walk into the expectation of like this film is going to like, like change everything about your relationship. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. But about, about IT, I think one of the things that is really fully encompassing about it is like, you can't expect people to show up for how you need them to show up mm. because that is potentially, that's your own expectations that you have on them. They may have been able to show up for you as much as they could. And the idea that they can't meet your expectations, that's not a failure, right? Because in their mind, they did all they could. And so in a sense, we, as in like the present, the the, the new generation, we have to be okay with the fact that with that and if we continue yeah. to grapple with that i think that's one of the things so we're trying to either build some sort of like you said like, like this bridge of like understanding like can you at least meet me there and it's like i've met you as far as i can and and we have to kind of be okay with that and in a similar sense you know i also have been going through that that journey as well being un- able to understand like you know what i needed my parents to be emotionally available for me in this way but they can't and the reason is because they either can't themselves or they've chosen not to. They've chosen to kind of close themselves off in that regard because being emotionally um, available is not something that they as like refugees from like yeah. a war-torn country can be able to do when you're, you know, even if you're, even if you're 50 years divorced from it, it doesn't matter. It still impacted you and, and how you grew up and how you sur- learned to survive. So then, okay, then all we can be able to do is just try to, foster the growth that we want for the future generation right so i mean and i and you and you see that you see that in the film like where basically uh juju chubaku uh yes (laughs) but that basically you say chewbacca yeah that's it juju chubaku uh anyway you know (laughs) uh but that's how jobu decides to stay present in that moment just like i could be anywhere that i want but i choose to be here and the reason is because i I choose to be able to show up for you in this way, even knowing that you can't show up for me in that way. And, and so that, that's just something that's going to continue to kind of be passed down. It's just like, you know, I wanted something better for my child's life and, and this is what I did for them. Well, yeah. And that, that gets into the other theme in the movie, which is like nihilism, which is, you know, if you don't know, it's a philosophy where you believe that nothing in life matters or everything in life leads to meaning nothing. And, when it comes to trying to meet your parents' expectations, right, this idea that's unique to Asian American culture where we often feel like no matter what we do, we could reach the highest of highs, right? It's never, it's not, I don't want to say it's never good enough for our parents, but it, it, there's a sense where it's like the sacrifice our parents made, again, if, you're speak, if I'm putting myself in first generation shoes, which, which I am, there's nothing that I could do to really replicate that or to um, match that. And I don't think they intend to have us match them, but it's like our way of thinking, I could, I want to be successful as, I want to be as successful as possible. So that way I could pay my parents back mm-hmm. for the sacrifices that, that they've made. In turn, they, they just have these very high expectations because it's like, I gave up so much, left my home country again, um, to give you a better life and better opportunity. And that journey of trying to meet that expectation, never really fulfilling it, 
you could easily fall into a trap of falling into the nihilistic point of view where it's like, well, everything that I'm doing doesn't necessarily mean I will ever make you happy. Again, this is not whether it's true or not. Most of the time, it's Mm, mm self-imposed. It kind of seems meaningless. And if you're also looking at it where it's a pessimistic point of view, it's kind of a cynical point of view, it is a legitimate philosophy where it's like, in the end, we're all going to die. So what does it all really mean, right? right? But I think in the movie, it does have, that's one of the predominant themes with Jobu and the Everything Bagel. Yes. Funny enough, I actually had an Everything Bagel this morning. <laughs> Not intentionally. I just ha- totally to intentional. Like, oh, everything Bagel, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of stale though, so I was a little bit Oh no, so, so it wasn't everything. <laughs> no, yeah, it was everything but fresh. <laughs> so, so in the movie, what it does is say, okay, in order, we accept the nihilistic point of view, if you accept the nihilistic point of view, if you accept that nothing in life does matter, as humans, what you can do for yourself is decide and choose to what does have meaning for you specifically. And that's kind of what Wayman does. And Ki Hui Kwan's character, he acts as that avatar of unconditional kindness and unrelenting optimism. Mm -hmm. Look, all things are going to go to shit. We read about it. We read stuff on the news. It seems pretty dis... We're always in despair as a, as a society. But at the end, you still have to find moments of finding meaning, whether that's family, whether that's your job, whatever it is. I love the line that Wayman says is like, that might make me seem naive, but really it's, it's a tool that I use to stay alive in this negative world. It's, he says it's a strategy and it's necessary. Oh, Ray, you were going to make me cry. That was so <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> I want to, I want to like, I want to like divulge a little bit into like, like antidote. Like a couple of weeks ago, I actually had a chance to go back to my motherland in Laos. Mm, And when you, when you say this, this idea of like nihilism, you were all going to die anyway. So nothing really matters. It really put into perspective everything for me because I definitely grew up nihilistic, right? I had creature comforts of being able to just like, not have to worry about about bombs and wars and 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 things mm. like that. And so being there in Laos where we had a chance to, you know, really a uh, quick side story like back in 1964 to 1973 the US um engaged in a secret war um, um in Laos where they dropped um over 260 million ton of uh, bombs to be able to disrupt the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And what that meant though was that Laos is the most bombed um, country per capita in the world. And mm-hmm. so, you know, my, I remember my parents telling me about how they were having to run, um, and escape that because, uh, from that and being able to be there where we had a chance to actually detonate uh, and remove these bombs from the ground to be able to give, like, they're, they were like in the middle of a village, right? Like, there's like, there's houses here and they're like, some of them are uh, brick, but many of them are still like, bamboo or wooden houses and there's like this this farmland there surrounded by bomb craters and we're out there in the field and we're we're watching this removal of a bomb mostly the main way to remove it is to blow it up and just to feel that concussiveness and think about how my parents had to deal with that like 24 7 where it was hundreds of them going off around them and and to think like this is what they ran away from right if they really felt like nihilistic and like nothing else matters. Why? Like what I saw when I was there was hope, you know, 
And mm. hope is not some fragile thing that can be broken from just blowing on it. Like hope is something where it's down in the trenches in the mud. It gets up. That's really what I, what I really saw coming from that movie again. Her dad stays back in old, in like in an old country and Evelyn leaves to the U.S. for a better opportunity. And what you're seeing is like the newer generation forgetting why they left in the first place. Some, not yeah. everyone was a refugee. Some people left just to immigrate. But the aspect that they could be able to leave for a better future for their offspring. And it's so, it's so different nowadays, too. Oftentimes, when you hear people move out of the United States to another country, they often do it because it's like, oh, I, I want to, for financial reasons, or I want to find myself. They want to eat, pray, love moment in their life. So they're moving out <laughs> because I want to discover myself. You yeah. Know? A lot of people do that, especially or like when they study abroad. Right. But imagine the U.S. going to shit, and then right. you're like, okay, well, I need to get leave this country for a better life. I don't even know what country that's going to be. <laughs> Let's say, you know, even if it was like a, a developed country like the U.K., and you're thinking, okay, you know, the U.K., it's a developed country. It's a first world country. But you don't know what experience you're going to have because you're essentially starting over. Right. You're not doing it because you want to discover yourself. You're doing it out of necessity. And I think that's something that we could never quite understand. Right. That aspect of discovering yourself, like for me, it was being able to discover my homeland again and just and really understand and appreciate like the the sacrifices that my parents made. I mean, like you're um, you know, you're half Vietnamese, half Chinese. And I'm I am? sure that wait, no. What? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> but I'm but you know, like, um it's a very complicated past when you talk about North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And in fact, it's it's actually still kind of hard now to to get your elders to talk about it or, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that that aspect of it, I think they don't want to talk about the past, right? You're here, you're in the future, you're not the future, you're in the here in the present, the the future that they've made for you. And I think that's something that you can see that like my my, my like my grandparents, for example, they also owned like a laundromat in that same way of just like, because like they, they bought it, they made it, they made it into something so that they can be able to give their family a future that they never would have had otherwise. I think that's why this concept of the multiverse is so interesting to me because mm -hmm. it's this idea of like various versions of ourselves. Like what if my parents didn't leave Vietnam or what if we went back to Vietnam or what if I wasn't born and raised in the Bay Area and we live somewhere in the South, like what, yeah. kind of, what type of person would I be? We're seeing that played out in movies a lot because it gives, also for writers, it gives the story infinite possibilities. You can really flesh out, and if you have the budget, you can really flesh out like scenes of like, how is this character going to, what is this character going to be like if we put them in this situation? We see that, in, you know, with Evelyn. Uh, and Jobu and Wayman, where it's like they can really develop the character. You know, I, I often have those thoughts too, when I'm thinking like, what if I made this choice instead of that choice? It's quite crazy to think about because it, it puts your mind into a, like a an understanding of like, I want, number one, I should, on one hand, I, I'm grateful for the decisions I've made and I wouldn't be where I am today. But the other hand, sometimes I do think like, damn, what, if, what would my life be better if I like, took this job instead of this job, you don't know, right? Yeah. 
even this year alone, how many multiverse movies were there? Like like three, yeah. four, you know? Like yeah, Spider Man, Doctor Strange. Yeah, exactly. I think there was like Riven Rivendale, Riverdale did an episode. So yeah. <laughs> and 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 yeah, because a lot of times it's like, where would I be? And if I had done this or that or voted this other person in and things like that. And I and I think it's just like there's this the fantasy of choice uh, of the fantasy of being able to like, maybe my life would have been different or better. There's that aspect of, am I living up to my best potential? Yeah. I think that's something that I think about often too. Is my life the best version of it that could potentially be? I I think you could always say like, that's up to you. You define of how, what best quote unquote is, but let's say there's a version of myself out there where I'm this huge famous actor or whatever, you know, or, or I'm the CEO of something. I actually, personally, I would never want to be a CEO of a company. No, you it's just way too much stress. But let's say there's that, right? Or there's also a version of me where I'm a crack cocaine addict. Who knows? You know? Okay. So it, <laughs> we project the better versions of ourselves of what we want to be because that's what you really want to do, right? That's the, that's the goal. You want to be successful in terms of like how other people define success. Absolutely. And so whether it's self-imposed, right, like you said a little bit earlier, is whether it's a self-imposed kind of limitations on ourselves or or higher aspirations of ourselves, or if it's some societal imposed or parental imposed, I think there's always the different flavors of how to take into account like our potential and the opportunities and, you know, whether we say yes or no, what what parallels that are drawn from that branch of decisions that we just took if you could meet a multiversal version of yourself would you oh absolutely it Mm. it was actually really interesting you said that because would it would it depend on if (laughs) if they're more successful than you you're like oh man but if you're more successful than them you're like yeah (laughs) well like um in, in the movie um evelyn there's one tree where Evelyn decides not to go with Wayman to the u.s right oh yeah 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 and and i and i had that same kind of like that mind meld kind of moment too is like, what if my parents didn't leave Laos and they stayed here? Like yeah. I would still be living like in the rural, rural parts of, of San Juan. Would I have ever moved away to go to university? Could have been a huge right? movie star. <laughs> Maybe I could have, right? Yeah, exactly. Take a wushu and just be super buff with my pinky, you know, just like stuff yeah. like that. But yeah, you know, I, I, I definitely would want to meet several different, multiversal parts or like Renee's and maybe like Jet Li off them so I can be the one but <laughs> yeah yeah like Kang the Conqueror that's right <laughs> would you put a butt plug in you to be able to meet that version of yourself <laughs> Ray Ray hey 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 look I would put butt plugs in for a lot less so you know <laughs> you shouldn't have asked wowza <laughs> put that kind of information out there who knows what kind of response you'll get <laughs> Um, you're going to use that on social, aren't you? <laughs> you t- t- take that out completely out of context. <laughs> you're going to use that snippet, damn it. Oh. But would you, right? Would you put a butt plug in you to gain superpowers? If it had to be a butt plug, I'd rather choose the the award on Deidre's desk versus the, the, I don't know what, it would seem like a bong or like a longer object that the <laughs> other guy put up his butt. That just seems... That was like much more cylinder because at least with the award, it has like a thin tip that kind of allows for easy penetration. So it's not as, you know, stretching of the asshole of your anus. 
But the cylinder thing, I don't even, like, ouch. I'm, I'm hoping that had uh, an entry point. Otherwise, if it was straight cylinder, that definitely ripped his asshole. Ray, do you think of stretching your asshole often? No. But I'm saying if I did, I'd rather have it. Yeah, I'm just saying I'd rather have it anatomically forgiving versus just straight up in there. I mean, that's mm, just, mm-hmm. yeah. And then to fight afterwards, that's. Uh, that's right. You know, Ray, Ray, Ray wants a very gentle fisting. So Gentle, yeah. yeah. Like if I had to do it, ease me into it. Don't just, shock me. Just a me. couple fingers, not the whole fist, you know? Yeah. Let me test it out, try it out, get a tasting. Hey, if I like it, first time's free. Second time, I'll, I'll buy it, you know? <laughs> All right. He's putting it out there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that clip too. Okay. Um, last, last thing I want to talk about. I know that everything everywhere all at once is up for numerous nominations yes golden globes um i think it has 14 nominations 12 or 14 a good amount it won best picture for the gotham awards which i golden globes though how much hope are you holding out that they're going to win oh my gosh okay well ray you know how i feel about award shows i don't need external validation um, but but it would be great if they won <laughs> all the awards. I will say one in particular that I was a little bit disappointed in was that um, Best Supporting Actress didn't go to Stephanie Hsu. It actually went to Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm. And I was a little really? bit disappointed in that uh, choice. I, I, okay, I want to say. Could you argue is because Stephanie is more of a lead actor? She she I mean, is Michelle yes she's but lead, there's no but. way she would have been up against Michelle I mean like yeah, if you so when it really comes down to it I know that I know that they put forth all of the names and all of the awards that they uh, for the categories that they fit into and this is just what it is I think I think you know for Golden Globes they always like to talk about you know the ones who, ha- who haven't gotten their flowers yet so that's possible that it's just because Jamie Lee Curtis has not won any golden globes been nominated many times um mm. so that's possible i mean like you know and stephanie Hsu still has like a budding uh career ahead of her yeah. but i still think she did such a great job she she should have been there for supporting i know she definitely could have been there for lead actress as well but uh just i mean as- if not lead then definitely supporting yeah that makes the most sense like yeah. jamie lee curtis's character important for sure but not in the screen same way wise. that Jobu is. Yeah, Jobu is definitely on screen a lot more, so it's a little bit interesting. Uh, did you know that for for Jobu, originally they wanted Aquafina or thought about casting Aquafina for the role? I Do you think did, that could have worked? No, shit. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I would have sort of watched it, but man, I, I would have been really can't disappointed. Imagine. I can't imagine it now. And um, they actually did a cut where they showed the audition for Stephanie Hsu, and it was so amazing. It really was like already there. It was so emotional and it was, it was so chaotic. And, and it was just like, how, how could they have decided that Aquafina would have been better over her? And, and I, in fact, to the point where I don't even think Aquafina did an audition. I think they were just putting it out there for like name recognition. They're like, Oh, okay. If we get this, if we get Jackie Chan and Aquafina yeah. on the bill, then we'll get funding for it kind of thing, yeah. you know? I'm just glad that it did not go to her and that it went to Stephanie Hsu rightfully. Yeah. So you're optimistic or not so optimistic? I'm optimistic, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna chance it. You know, I'm gonna think yeah. you know, I'm gonna have very low expectations. If they win, they win. If not, uh burn it down to the ground yet again. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna have a revolt. A rebel. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay. Well, 
Lovely conversation as per usual. Yes, of course, Ray. It is always a pleasure to be able to be here in front virtually of you with our audience members here listening. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for another episode of Real Asian Podcast. Bye. Bye.